I hope as we go through the book of Matthew, especially these early chapters, that we are seeing that these are not just uh, stories about Jesus that we have a little bit of information about him or whatever. They are the fulfillment of all the Old Testament prophecies. And we're seeing this in great detour, detail being brought out. There's reasons why we're studying the things that we've studied in the first two chapters concerning the birth of Christ and his coming into the world. Chapter 3 is no different. We're seeing here fulfillment of prophecies, things that are very important for us to understand what is going on. And that'll be the same when we get to chapter 4 and the temptation. It's not just an interesting story of how Jesus was able to combat uh uh, an example for us of how to combat the temptations of Satan. It is certainly that, but it is much more. It is, it is helping us understand what is going on as Christ, the Messiah is coming to the world to save us from our sins. And each theme, uh, each of these accounts are, are, are giving us, filling in some of the details. And so there's just uh, some important things going on here, and I hope we uh, will see that today. As we look at, as I've in, uh, entitled it, The Coming of John the Immerser. Unfortunately, uh, I don't think we have any English translations that faithfully translate that. It's been turned into such a uh, object of baptism and such a controversial issue with so many different forms that uh, even though it means to immerse, to dip, uh, it's become to mean just basically a, a right and uh, and we'll talk a little more about that as we go along. But this is what it means. In the original, when, uh, it, 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 the Bible calls it John the Baptist, John the Immerser. That's what John did. He came immersing people for a certain reason. We'll get into all that at some point. Um, there, uh, last week, though, we saw there are three types of Old Testament prophecies. There were types, like, like the animal sacrifices that were very obvious, uh, pointing to Christ or some New Testament thing. There were clear statements like uh, the Messiah was going to be born in Bethlehem. And that's a clear statement uh, that everybody understood what it was saying. Uh, then there were statements that you have to kind of have the New Testament to explain to you a little bit. That, uh, that we saw last week that when uh, we got the daughters of Jerusalem were to reap uh, and so forth and that... We saw that that took place in Jeremiah, or uh, and Jeremiah referred to that, and that, uh, or, or the flight out of Egypt, I have called my son. That that, in its ritual context, is speaking about Israel coming out of Egypt, and that you wouldn't necessarily connect all the dots if you didn't have the New Testament to shed some light on it. And we saw three examples of those, or at least two examples of those, last week. We also saw that the uh, name Nazareth uh, means the branch, and that there, I think, is clear evidence that Matthew is referring to the Old Testament prophecies that the Messiah would be called a branch when he refers to Jesus being called a Nazarene or Jesus of Nazareth. And so one example that we looked at pretty closely in Zechariah, here now Joshua, remember Joshua is just Jesus in the Greek. Here, O Joshua, high priest, you and your friends who sit before you, for they are men who are assigned. Behold, I will bring my servant, the branch, 
take from them silver and gold, and I will make a crown and set it on the head of Joshua. They were acting all this out. Joshua, a priest who was, could not be king, here all of a sudden you have a priest, the high priest, having a crown put upon him and calling him and say to him, Thus says the Lord of hosts, Behold, the man whose name is the branch, for he shall branch out from his place and he shall build the temple of the Lord. So in this high priest Joshua, Jesus, there's a crown, call him the branch, call him the Nazarene, call him of Nazareth. And so I think there's that, I think that's the best to me, uh, thing that's the way to understand what Matthew is saying there in the last, uh, phrase of, uh, chapter two. And we dealt with that last week. So next in Matthew's account is the fulfillment of the prophecy concerning the forerunner of the Messiah, John the Baptist. I'm going to bombard you a little bit with text, with, with scripture today, more so than usual, because I think it's necessary as I try to explain my view of some of these things that you understand that there are, there's a lot of scripture, and I'm not dealing with all of it, but a lot of scripture that I believe supports what I'm going to try to say today. And as Matthew is showing all this is fulfillment of scripture anyway. Um, in this chapter, there are two great men referred to, of course, John the Baptist and Jesus. In the worldly way of thinking, uh, they were far from great. Uh, they, they uh, on outward appearance, did not look like they had any money, didn't have any power, didn't have many followers. Uh, but the Bible says has, says these two men are very great, of course, Jesus being the obvious one. But even John, Jesus says, was the greatest prophet born of, of a woman. So obviously what makes a man great before God can only be one thing, and that is humility before him, in which you solely are his servant, and he's the greatest love of your life. And when that's true... You will be great in the kingdom of God. And certainly these two men show that to be the case. Now in ancient times it was a common, it was common for a herald to go before a monarch to announce his coming. And in so doing, he would also prepare the way. He would remove obstacles that were in the way to make it easy for uh, the king to get there. And then when he got there, he would announce his coming. Here he is. And we're going to see that John the Baptist, of course, is doing that. And that's why these, uh, this text in uh, Isaiah 40 is referred to, uh, because he's doing that. Uh, John is said to be this man of the Old Testament. And uh, while all four Gospels have uh, different points of view, including... Uh, Different, they include different things that others might not include. They all are very careful to relate the coming of John, and I think for good reason, because it's another piece to the Messianic puzzle. The Messiah could not come until John came, until Elias, Elijah came, and so it only stands to reason that since that is the kind of the last thing to be fulfilled before Messiah comes, that John would come, and that the that the all four Gospels will make it very clear that one reason we know that Jesus is the Messiah is because Elijah came, just as the Old Testament said he would, in the form of John the Baptist. And so that's what we're seeing here. 
Um, and of course, uh, the uh, text that is quoted here is from Isaiah 40. We'll uh, talk about this a little bit later later on. But it says, uh, a voice cries in the wilderness, prepare a way of the Lord. Make straight in a desert a, a highway for our God. So I think Israel here is kind of being referred to as a wilderness. Because we know that Jesus didn't find a whole lot. He came into his own and received him not. Now there's going to be a sense in which John is in the wilderness. But even that, I think, speaks to the fact that Judaism is being left behind. And the, the leaders of the, the Jews and the scribes and, and, and the Pharisees and all these people uh, had rejected Christ. And if you're going to find Christ, you're going to have to go outside of the nation, outside of of, of the uh, of Judaism. And that's what John was in Jordan. He didn't come to uh, Jer- to Jerusalem announcing all this. He he was outside to to call people out uh, from what they're being taught unto unto to the king. He's outside of the city, and we'll see some text other text here in a moment. So it says that in doing this, making a straight the deserts a highway for our God, every valley shall be lifted up, and every mountain and hill shall be made low. Again, this is hyperbole language, and this is what they did. They're, they're removing the obstacles, and the, the great obstacle right now is identification. And John was going to make it very clear, here he is. And uh, so every shall become level, the rough places plain. And the glory of the Lord shall be revealed, and all flesh shall see it together. And again, not we know that not everybody saw it, but everybody there saw it. For the mouth of the Lord has spoken it. The glory of Yahweh is revealed, of course, in the second person of the Godhead, Jesus Christ. <clears throat> um, some other texts, uh, Old Testament texts that show this, Malachi 3.1. Behold, I send my messenger... And, and this, of course, is the very last prophecy before Christ came, before John came. Behold, I send my messenger, and he will prepare a way before me. And the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple. There's a, little, there's a lot of light going on right there. That Yahweh shall come to his temple. This is nobody's temple but Yahweh's temple. Everybody, nobody, no man can say this is my temple. But here... Malachi says that Yahweh will come to his temple, the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight. Behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. So a great, uh, that, that one reason why we know Jesus Christ is God, because he's the one who fulfills this, and it's his temple. He said, this is my father's house. Behold, chapter 4 says, I will send you Elijah the prophet before that great and awesome day of the Lord comes. Now, again, if your eschatology is a little suspect, there are people who say, well, this this can't be the same prophecy. It's going to be some other time. So here, Yahweh, Elijah is going to come because the awesome day of the Lord has got to be the, the second coming. So this is, this is speaking to another time in the future. No, it's just, it's just Malachi restating this again, Elijah, because we're going to see here that Jesus says that John is Elijah. The awesome day of the Lord is the day when the Lord comes in that first um, uh, advent and he does this great work of redemption. That's a great day uh, of the day in which he comes. He does his work of redemption and of course 70 years later or 60 years later or so, or excuse me, about 30 years later, um, 
the awesome day of judgment upon Israel for their rejection. And he will turn the hearts of the fathers to their children, the hearts of their children to their fathers, lest I come and strike the land with the decree of utter destruction. And so, um, we, we see those two prophecies there. And then the fulfillment of them, first of all, in Luke chapter 1, verse 17, here uh, Zechariah is being told what John, his son, will be doing, and he will go before him in the spirit and power of Elijah. So you immediately connect that to those verses in Malachi, and turn the hearts of the fathers to the children, and to the disobedient, to the wisdom of the just, and to make ready the Lord for a people prepared. So it's not something that's happened in the future, 2,000 or more years later, it's what happened in that first advent. And then down in verse 76, and you child, this is because after John had been born, will be called the prophet of the Most High, for you will go before the Lord to prepare his ways, to give knowledge of salvation to his people and the forgiveness of their sins, because of the tender mercies of our Lord God, whereby the sunrise shall visit us from the high to give light to those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death. So the ministry of John was to prepare the way for the Lord to come and bring salvation, to guide our feet in the way of peace. And the child grew and became strong in the spirit, and he was in the wilderness until the day of his public appearance to Israel. So there, there can be no question about who John was and what he was there to do. He's, he's, getting, he's preparing the way for the Messiah. So the Messiah obviously was going to come in the days of John the Baptist. One reason his ministry was in the Jordan Valley was to fulfill these prophecies, which was in the wilderness. It was outside of the uh, country, as it were, in, in the Jordan, um, outside of, of the Jerusalem. Matthew picks up where Malachi leaves off some 400 years earlier. Then he also needed to baptize. And the Jordan was the place where there was a lot of water. There was not a lot of water in many places in Israel. You had the Sea of Galilee, the Sea of uh, Gesseret, or however you pronounce that. But then you, know, you needed a lot of water to baptize. And that right there says a lot. We, we spoke a lot about baptism in, the, in Sunday school. And uh, we'll, we'll do a little bit more before it's over with uh, today and next week. You needed to, a lot of water to baptize. Because you don't sprinkle people when you baptize. Not when you baptize biblically. You don't pour water over their head. That's why John needed a river. And uh, we notice in John 3, John also was baptizing at Anon near Salim because water was plentiful there and people were coming and being baptized. This would make no sense if all he was going to do is to sprinkle some people or pour a cup of, half a cup of water on someone's head. That verse would make absolutely no sense. Yet I have read Pado Baptist and those who think sprinkling and pouring are, that are, are, is biblical say that because this was an arid land, he could not possibly have been immersing people. Uh, hello, he's at the, he's in the River Jordan. James Montgomery Boyce, whom I certainly have appreciated as a commentator. He is a covenant theologian. Therefore, he's got some, I, I consider to be very obvious, uh, doctrinal problems. <laughs> he goes so far to suggest 
that since baptism is about identification, uh, about identification with Christ, the Greek word really means um, identification and not immersion. So we don't like this idea of baptism meaning immersion, so let's just get rid of it because really baptism is about identification with Christ. Well, it is. I agree with that. But the word, because you, 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 to, to take this position, you've got to throw all the Greek lexicons out uh, because everybody knows what the word means. That's, that's not really an issue. People might be confused, might be misled, but it's not hard to find out what it means. So we'll throw all that out and say, well, since it's about identification, <clears throat> uh, that's really all that matters. Well, no, because in the Greek text, it's being, he's being called John the Immerser, John the Dipper. That's what the word was always used for. Now, I agree, it is an ordin- the ordinance of baptism is an ordinance that that means our identification with the finished work of Christ. But that doesn't change the original meaning of what it of what it means and what they were doing, what John was doing. Biblically, there's no way to get around the fact that whatever you think is going on in baptism is a whole other subject, but whatever what they were doing in the New Testament was plunging people under the water. And, of course, I think there's good reasons for that. We don't have time to get into it today. So those depictions of Jesus and John waist deep in water while John pours a handful of water on him, and I've seen them, we all probably have, is a, is a deliberate attempt to mislead what the Bible makes crystal clear. It's like standing in the baptistry and sprinkling somebody. It looks ludicrous. Why would you do it? Why would you waste gallons and gallons of water if you're just going to sprinkle? And of course you wouldn't. And that's what's going on here with John and Jesus uh, as he baptizes. We'll get into the baptism next week. <clears throat> so today, when Passover is celebrated by the Jews... And I, from what I understand, circumcision as well. That's not, I didn't know that, uh, but that's something I have learned recently. We know that an empty chair is placed, set up, is, is put out there. Uh, and the, the reason for that is that we are waiting for the Messiah. And it's the chair of Elijah because they're waiting for Elijah to come. Because when Elijah comes, they know the Messiah is coming. And so on one level, it's extremely sad. That you're celebrating a, a the Passover, you're celebrating something that speaks of Jesus Christ, and yet you are missing the point of it entirely. Uh, Matthew 17, if you want to turn over there for a second, a few pages of Matthew 17, let's begin reading in verse 10. <clears throat> and the disciples asked him, that is Jesus, when... Then why do the scribes say that Elijah must come? And he answered, Elijah does come, and he will restore all things. So again, to restore all things doesn't have to mean that there's a new heavens and a new earth, that everybody uh, believes or anything like that. It, he's restored. It, it is speaking about Jesus who's going to restore. He, he's restoring things. He's beginning that process because obviously it took place when John was there. He answered, Elijah does come, and he will restore all things. But I tell you that Elijah has already come, and they did not recognize him. 
but did to him whatever they pleased. So also the Son of Man will certainly suffer at their hands. Then the disciples understood that he was speaking to them of John the Baptist. So Elijah has already come. There's no need to put a chair out for him because he's come in John the Baptist. Now he came preaching publicly, announcing something. And of course that's another huge issue. Preaching, of course, and I want to make this plain. I have to, we've talked about this before, but preaching is a little different than teaching. <clears throat> preaching is proclaiming God's truth clearly. It is, in a sense, as, as John is called, as a herald. It is to herald something. Is say, "Thus says the Lord." It, 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 uh, it, it's not about giving opinions and advice. It's not suggesting things. Now, those things might be involved in a preaching service, but it is to proclaim. It is saying, hey, here's what the Bible says. Take it or leave it. Because that's exactly what John does. Here is the Lamb of God. Take him or leave him. Either repent for the remission of sins or die in your sins. You've only got two options. And so, so when I stand up here and preach, I'm deliberately proclaiming the Word of God for us to hear and to learn and to accept. I'm not up here saying, here are, here are some things, uh, you know, some good advice. Uh, it's up to you whether you want to believe it or not. Well, in one sense, it is up to us. But there's no real option because if you don't accept it, you're going to die in your sins. So John is saying, these are the facts. Submit to it or perish. Again, being in the wilderness points out that for one to enter Christ's kingdom, and this is all about entering into Christ's kingdom, and we'll get into that in a moment here. To get into that, you must forsake this world and Judaism, and say, you're not just forsaking Judaism, but you're forsaking works, and embrace Christ. Um, again, Hebrews 13.12, I think it also explains this. So Jesus also suffered outside the gate in order to sanctify those people through his own blood. Therefore, let us go to him outside the camp and bear the reproach he endured. As he finishes up this book to the uh, to, to Jews who are in danger of going back into Judaism, he reminds them that Jesus was born outside of Jerusalem. And if you're going to have a part of him, you're going to have to leave Judaism and embrace the cross. Listen, I think it's a very similar situation there. <clears throat> now Luke dates John the Baptist's ministry on the 15th year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar, which would put this around 26 AD. Jesus would have been about 30 years old because uh, he was probably born in 4 BC. And we are also given a physical description of John. Uh, that he looks a lot like uh, someone else that we just uh, were familiar with. Whoops, went too far here. Oh, okay, I didn't put that on the screen. Second Kings one eight. They answered him. Uh, you know, he's asking about who this man was, and he says he wore a garment of hair and a belt of leather about his waist. And he said, "Oh, that's Elijah the Tishbite." And, and John is described as looking a lot like him, wearing the same kind of clothes and eating the same kind of food. And so all this kind of begs the question, why is Elijah used to describe the forerunner of the Messiah? Well, if you think about it, 
Elijah was also outside the establishment, the established religion, and the established political process. He was the odd man out because he was in northern Israel. They had pretty much rejected Yahweh altogether. He came telling the king, as well as the country, that they had better turn back to the true God or judgment's coming. And that's what John the Baptist is doing. So in the spirit of Elijah, he's doing exactly what Elijah did. He's he's speaking to a people who are in danger of missing the Messiah altogether and saying, look, you had better repent and you better uh, forget about keeping the law and you better turn to the Messiah as he comes. Repent and be baptized. So it was never a prophecy that Elijah, the the actual Elijah, was going to come back to earth. They had similarities. And so the, the next thing I want us to notice here is what is he actually saying? What's the message that he's saying? Down here in verse 6. Um, well, yeah, it, it says they were baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins, but um, this particular text doesn't... Um, you know, well, yeah, verse 2 is what I'm looking at, not verse 6. What's the message he's saying? Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. What does that mean? It means one thing and one thing only. Repent, because the kingdom is about to begin. There's a lot of confusion about that. But that, you know, in the Greek, that's what it means. That's what, in the context, is what it means. While all four Gospels include his teaching, they do point at it a little bit differently for emphasis. John mainly points to John, John, the the Gospel of John mainly points to John identifying Jesus as the Messiah. Uh, It doesn't speak a lot about his preaching, but it speaks a lot about how he identified him as the Lamb of God. Uh, Luke speaks mostly about John's ethical teaching. Mark begins with John, and like Matthew speaks of repentance and the coming kingdom. They're very similar. They have John and Jesus saying, repent for the kingdom of God is at hand. And so, what does this mean? Well, I think it can be summed up in three parts. First of all, we have in here a warning. Pretty obvious. Repent or face God's judgment. And we might be a little more specific. Repent. Or you're not getting in the kingdom. Right? That's what he's saying. And this is rooted in Old Testament prophecies of the reign of the Messiah. We have tried as we go through the Old Testament to show that all these prophecies of Christ concerning him come coming to atone for sin and set up a kingdom by gathering the elect into the church, which will eventually be seen in the perfect state. But we've seen that these there's only one kingdom that the Old Testament will look forward to. There's not two. Certainly not three. This kingdom, this Messiah and this kingdom that he was going to be set up. And if you read the New Testament at all, you know that the Jews rightly understood that when Messiah comes, he was going to set up a kingdom. That was that was a given. And it happened. All right? And so we've, we've tried to make that very clear. As we've gone through the Old Testament, now as we see the fulfillment of that, we want to put those two things together. He's setting up the kingdom. The kingdom began. It began uh, at 
uh, when he ascended on high and sat down on the right side hand of the throne of God. You see, he's on the throne of heaven. Um, here's, let's just look at some verses here. Acts 1-3. He presented himself alive to them after his suffering of many, by many proofs, appearing to them during 40 days and speaking about the kingdom of God. Now, what he wasn't doing for 40 days is speaking about a future kingdom that nobody really knew what was going on. At 2,000 plus years, there's going to be this kingdom. I don't believe he's speaking to them about that kingdom. And we're going to prove it here in a moment. He's speaking to them about the kingdom. What does that mean, the kingdom? Well, the kingdom is the gospel. Chapter 8 of Acts, verse 12. When they believed, Philip, preaching the things concerning the kingdom of God, in the name of Jesus Christ, they were baptized, both men and women. So it was by, you know, you're saved by believing the gospel. Right? Not by believing there's going to be a future kingdom. You're saved by believing the gospel. The gospel is the good news of Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection, right? So when Philip was speaking concerning the kingdom of God, that's a euphemism for the gospel. The king has come. The king has done his work. The king raised on high. You're going to repent. and. and and believe on him or you're going to go to hell. And when they heard that, they were baptized. Because you don't baptize someone unless they believe and repent, right? Both men and women. So, again, those, those texts are pretty clear. Let's keep going. <clears throat> Acts 19.8 And he entered the synagogue and for three months spoke boldly, reasoning and persuaded them about the kingdom of God. Again, this isn't a book, this is, he's not talking about eschatology and about, hey, you know, someday a kingdom's coming. No, because the kingdom's already come. And that, verse 25 of chapter 20. And now, behold, I know that none of you among whom I have gone about proclaiming the kingdom will see my face again. Well, what is Paul doing in the book of Acts? He's going around preaching the gospel. He's not holding seminars on eschatology. And when, chapter 28. When they had appointed a day for him, he came to him at his lodging in greater numbers. From morning till evening, he expounded to them, testifying to the kingdom of God and trying to convince them about Jesus, both from the law of Moses, from the prophets. That's what we're doing. Again, he's not about the Ten Commandments, about the Old Testament. And then, lastly, verse 31, proclaiming the kingdom of God and teaching about the Lord Jesus Christ with all boldness and without hindrances. So, there's other ones we can look at, but I think those kind of speak for themselves. These are these are a good uh, cross section of scripture that shows that Jesus and John are speaking of the spiritual nature of the reign of Christ in the hearts of those gospel converts. And then, of course, you have John three, which is John's way of bringing this out. Nicodemus. How do you get into the kingdom of God? And Jesus says, well, you got to first of all die and wait 2,000 years, and then you're going to get in the kingdom of God. No, you are, it's through the regeneration. you got to be born again. That's the only way anyone's going to be in the kingdom of God. And elsewhere, where he talks about men pressing themselves to enter the kingdom of God. Now, we know that there are those who see these things a little differently. Since Matthew 
Uh, and again, this is such a bad argument. I, I was raised on this uh, that it's hard to even say it without, because it's so obvious in the beginning there's something wrong here. But um, I was told that, well, Matthew uses the term kingdom of heaven. The other synoptics use the term kingdom of God. And so, therefore, um, Matthew is talking about the uh, kingdom, uh, a spiritual kingdom, or a physical kingdom, I guess the other ones are talking about, when they say kingdom of heaven, that's a, that's a spiritual kingdom. So, you got different kingdoms. And the problem is, Matthew also, there's a lot of problems, but Matthew uses both the terms kingdom of heaven and Matthew, and kingdom of God as well. So it doesn't even work on the face of it. But also, both of those are used interchangeably. Um, so the idea, though, is that, well, Jesus came saying the kingdom of God is, is at hand. He was offering the kingdom to the Jews, a physical kingdom. But since they rejected it, that kingdom got postponed. So there you've got a twist to all this that the Old Testament never saw coming, I guess. That, uh, well, the king, he did come, but he, but they rejected it. So, so now you've got a problem. But again, it, it fails because even Matthew 5 says, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And Luke, in his account, says kingdom of God. So those those terms are used uh, interchangeably. So you can't say that kingdom of God means one thing, kingdom of heaven means another thing. No, it's the kingdom promised in the Old Testament. There's only one promise, only one kingdom. <clears throat> now, I was reading one of the... My commentators I like to uh, read now and then is dispensational. And, of course, he's got a problem. You come to this, and this doesn't really fit. you got a system I've got to figure out. So here's his take on John the Baptist saying the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Because, again, everybody knows that what he's saying is that it's, uh, it's about to begin. It's near, right? So here's how he explains this. It is my personal opinion that John, at least, he's, at least he's saying it's an opinion and not like absolute truth, right? That John the Baptist, like most of the prophets, did not clearly distinguish between the first and second coming of the Messiah. He did not seem to grasp the fact that the Messiah would come twice. The first time to die as a perfect sacrifice for sinners, and the second time to defeat his enemies and establish his kingdom. So John got it wrong. Indeed, he goes on to say, John's message would appear to focus more on our Lord's second coming than his first. So he doesn't make any bones about it. John's really speaking. He doesn't quite get it, but he's really not talking about what's about to happen, but what's going to happen at the second coming. This, he goes on to say, should come as no surprise to us for such was the dilemma of all the Old Testament prophecies, prophets. So notice what he's saying here. John was confused and that it, it, it wasn't going to come. Now it's going to come later. Uh, now, as I say that, do any lights start going off in our head? Because if John the Baptist is confused, who else is confused? Because who else was preaching the exact same thing? Well, Jesus was. And Jesus says the kingdom is at hand too. So did he mess it up? 
So he, he makes this statement, but he doesn't explain, okay, wait just a minute, this creates a whole lot of other problems. No, I would say John is not confused about the comings. Jesus Christ had come, and that's all he was there to explain anyway. John was confused, as many were, of the nature of the kingdom. But he wasn't confused about when the kingdom was going to come. It was coming right then and there. The nature of the kingdom, though, because the Jews' big mistake was to assume that the kingdom was going to be physical, Jewish, reigning from Jerusalem. And to this day, a lot of them still haven't figured out that no, the kingdom was never going to be about that. The kingdom was going to be about the church and about uh, about redemption. About bringing people into this other kind of kingdom, this kingdom of light. We'll look at some passage here in just a moment. Mark one fifteen says, The time is fulfilled. This is Jesus. The time is fulfilled, and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. So he's saying that the Old Testament prophecies about this time has come. And so the, the point is, repent and believe the gospel. Jesus didn't say that, that, that it might be fulfilled. It depends upon whether you want to accept it or not. No, Jesus doesn't use language like that. God doesn't use language like that. It is The time is now. So if John's confused, Jesus is confused. And of course we know the answer there. So while we know that the entire universe is under God's sovereign rule, and again, sometimes it's confusing because when you think about kingdoms, God has always been God. God has always ruled over all things. And while the kingdom began in Christ, uh, God was always ruling in the Old Testament, right? So we we understand that. Yet, as we saw when we went through 1 Corinthians 15, Jesus was given a mediatorial kingdom. He's a mediatorial king as he saves all those that the Father has given him. And I don't know if I... Yeah, I think I did put this up. No, I didn't. Uh, Let me just read to you I don't think I do. Let me make sure I've got my. Yeah, okay, here's. I'm sorry. Then comes the end when he delivers the kingdom to God the Father. So the kingdom, this isn't the earth. It's not just God's rule. It's a specific kingdom where the people were given to the Lord to save. And once God has built that church and saved that last soul, he will come again. He will give that kingdom to the Father after destroying every rule and every authority and power, for he must reign until or while he is putting all his enemies under his feet. Christ is reigning now. You can't sit on the right hand of the throne of God and not be reigning. And and that reign, though, is specific to building the church. He's letting Satan be the prince of power of the air to some degree, all to accomplish his purposes, but he's the mediatorial king. <clears throat> um, Colossians 1, 3, 13. He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us into the kingdom of his beloved son. So we're in a kingdom. If you got saved and you're born again, you have entered into the kingdom. This is now. This is present, right? 
And so verse 2, when he says repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand, is a warning, as we said, because the one of the things the king will do is to judge all people. This is the coming of the gospel of salvation. Either you heed it, or you're lost in your sins. And while the day of judgment will occur at its second coming, today, we're told, is a day of salvation. It's gained by trusting in the king priest and entering into his kingdom where you are safe. So it's now, not later. One's eternal state will be determined with what you do with the incarnate Jesus today. And that's what we'll see we get into verse 12, but I don't, we won't even begin to have time to get into the latter part of this section today. I wanted Jeff to read it, and we'll probably read it again next week as we finish the chapter. Um, Isaiah 40, then going back to Isaiah 40 here, about the voice crying in the wilderness. Uh, what does it mean? John was not a landscaper. It's not talking about a physically moving earth and cleaning up a roadway and stuff like that. But he's going to preach in full light so there'll be no more shadows, no more things that cause problems in understanding who the king will be. Because he, his ministry is to point directly at Jesus and to point out to Israel, there is your Messiah. And we'll see here in a moment where he actually does that. Here's your Redeemer. Repent and believe for the goodness of sins. He's preparing the people. Obstacles that kept one from Jesus your heart, your unbelief, your pride. And John is saying, repent of all that so you can accept the Messiah. So you've got a warning, though, of what happens if you don't. Secondly, there's a demand, which we've already alluded to, and that, of course, is repentance. It's a prerequisite of entering the kingdom. Jesus expands on this as only coming through regeneration, but it's not going to come without it. And so John explains what he means by repentance. It means a change in one's mind. Um, verses 7 through 10. Again, we'll get to this more next week. you got to live a different way. It's not being sorry for being a sinner. It's not doing penance. Something you can do without uh, any real repentance. You just do whatever you're told to do, and God will be happy. Say the rosary. As if saying the rosary, a prayer to Mary, is going to make God want to forgive your sins. It means to become a whole new person, to change the way you think, the way you live, to do a 180. Jesus and later the apostles use the same word when it comes to believing the gospel. So verse 9 points out that the Jews' great sin was thinking that they didn't need to repent and be redeemed because they were children of Abraham. Well, that's what you needed to repent of in their case. I was reading about a group of children who were asked, what, what does repentance mean? And they uh, said, you know, being sorry for your sins. And finally, one a little girl says, well, it means to be sorry enough to quit. And then that, she was starting to get a grasp of what true biblical repentance is. And it can only come from God. Because it's not just reformation, because anybody can reform. There's not much willpower you've got. It's not reformation. It's having a change of heart, being become a different person. If, if conversion is just reformation, then it's easy to see how people can lose their salvation because, you know, the next day, you know, you know, you're not as committed as you were. But if it's a transformation and you're sealed by the Holy Spirit, 
that you cannot be lost, you cannot unrepent, that you've been sealed. And so biblical repentance presupposes that our lives are off course and we need to turn around. But it, as John does, points us in the direction of the Savior who can make atonement for sins, not to your good works. And so we cannot make the mistake the Jews made in thinking that there is something innately in us, innate in us, that will make us acceptable to God. You know, in verse 7, you've got these scribes that they were coming to be identified because they, they, it was a popular thing to do by some of the people, and John calls them on it, um, because they were trying to, to be baptized without repentance. You can't be identified with Christ if you haven't been changed. And so everything about John illustrates what it is to believe that Jesus is your only Savior. He gave, John gave up easy living and friends and family to go wherever uh, God led him. He willingly ate grasshoppers. He moved to Alaska to, to, for Christ. And you say, well, what do you mean? He moved, uh, he moved out in the boondocks. And, and the question would be, are we willing to do that? There's a demand here. Have we met the demand? You call yourself a Christian. Is there something that you would not do if God told you to do it? I don't care if you're 80 years old, if you're sickly, if you're just married. If God says, hey, I want you to move to Alaska, will you do it? And if there's anything in your heart that says, maybe not, then you need to make a call in an election, sure. And so that says something about who we are to listen to. Because God's preachers are not those who worry about pleasing men and they'll be willing to suffer ridicule and ostracization of the world for the message that they must preach. If the message is true, it will not be found in any other concept than leaving the world and following Jesus. The world will see you as hillbillies, but that better be okay. You might not think that such preaching is hard. It's not for everybody. Uh, and, and some are going to leave. It happened to John. It happened to Jesus. So I expect no less. Our God is either worth everything or he isn't worth the gas to drive to church. But what is he in your heart? And then finally, and here we're, we're done, there's a promise. There's one coming who can give you the very nature of God. We'll get more into this in verse 11, where he says, I baptize you with water for repentance, but one is coming after me mightier than I, whose sandals I am not worthy to carry, he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. We'll uh, deal with that. That needs some explaining. But we see a promise here that baptizing with water, in one sense, doesn't do anything if you haven't been baptized from within. In John one thirty three, John here says, I myself did not know him, but he who sent me to baptize with water said, and of course that's God, right? He on whom you see the Spirit descend and remain, this is he who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. And so John says this, and of course Jesus came, so so his that when that happened, that was John up until that point, you know, wasn't 100% sure that Jesus was the Messiah. He had probably been told that. There was indications of that. He knew that there was something that had to happen. And once he saw that, then the next day, as you read John 1, he's walking, he's, he's preaching, and 
here comes Jesus, and he's, he was just baptized the day before. He sees Jesus coming, and he points to him and says, Behold, the Lamb of God takes away the sins of the world. And there's John making, preparing that way, pointing to the Messiah. He's doing the work of Elijah. So, lastly then, like John, all who truly see Christ as the Lamb of God will be in the business of pointing him to others. In other words, I want to leave that one little practical application that if John, who is the greatest of all the prophets, because he pointed directly to Christ without shadows, then it would behoove us if we want to be as John to point people to Christ. I was reading about a a man who was was on a a river boat and um, went down to Mississippi and he was standing next to an old black guy who worked on the the, uh, boat and uh, they were talking and the guy all of a sudden says, there comes the captain. He says, why are you getting all excited about the pointing to the captain? He says, because years ago, I fell overboard and the the captain pulled me to safety and saved my life. And so, I just love to point people to the captain. And and that should be how we can identify with this. One day, the Lord saved me, and so we just love to point people to Christ, to our Savior. Reading also about um, a, a little church. This is years, decades ago, in, in an affluent area of Richmond, Virginia. There's a little gospel church there, and the affluent people didn't like that singing came from the church. It disturbed them, and they actually were signing a petition to try to get the city to stop them from singing. And because we don't want to hear it, we don't like that. And they came to a Jewish. Uh, man's house, and they said, well, here, we're going to sign the petition to shut this so they won't be singing it. And a Jewish man said, you know, I can't sign that because if I believe as they do that that was the Messiah had come, I'd be shouting from the uh, rooftops, you couldn't shut me up. And he wouldn't sign it. I hope that's how we feel about Jesus Christ. We like to point him out to, uh, to this world just like John the Baptist did. Well, we have stopped there a little bit longer than normal. I kind of figured I would be, but that's okay. Yeah, I can do it now and then, right? So, um, any questions or comments so before we close? Yes. All right, thank you. Dismissed.